Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. A History of God, the 4,000-Year Quest of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam by Karen Armstrong. The following is a book review of Karen Armstrong's A History of God, published in 1993. Over the last 10 years, Armstrong's book has achieved fame and is well known to most, at least by sight. Admittedly, a large topic, Armstrong acknowledges within the introduction that she will focus on the monotheisms of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, referencing atheist Buddhism, polytheist Hinduism, and paganism to help make certain points to clarify features of the three religions that are the book's primary concern. Along with useful maps, so one does not get lost, the text is divided into 11 chapters, with an introduction that lucidly sets forth Armstrong's argument. The 11th chapter concludes her argument and history with the titular question, Does God Have a Future? The following will briefly look at the form and structure of her argument as it runs through the main chapters of her work, dwelling as little as possible on simple content. The rest of my review will then focus in detail upon Armstrong's basic position, how it is argued, and what it implies. She begins with an introduction, presenting her context and background, that she was a nun for seven years and discontent, left her order in 1969. This opening includes her argument that will be looked at in greater detail as it runs through her history. Chapter 1, In the Beginning, considers the proposal of Wilhelm Schmidt, who believed that original human religion was monotheistic, but over time, paganism, idolatry, and more accessible models of deity replaced this original high god who was then forgot. Armstrong then moves on to Rudolf Otto's idea of the holy, or numinous, as endemic and central to all religion. This chapter is essentially a proposal that God or gods are humanly manufactured to suit the needs of the context. Chapter 2, One God, regards the emergence of what might be called Yahwism, and the emergence of the One God of Israel from Greek philosophies, paganisms, as a recovery of the forgotten and primeval High God that humans first and, in Principia, invented to worship. Armstrong cites this Yahweh emergence as an example of Rudolf Otto's principle of common holiness in the world religions, as well 
as fulfilling Israel's need for a moralizing influence. Chapter 3, A Light to the Gentiles, begins with a hermeneutic of suspicion, arguing that the first full account of Jesus' life by St. Mark was intentionally mythologized by its author, and that Christianity developed but certainly would not have survived without the support of Rome. Armstrong makes clear that Jesus did not believe himself to be God, and that Christianity developed normally as any other religion natural to humans. Chapter 4, Trinity, the Christian God, begins with the Arius and the Near Eastern controversy of whether the Son was greater, equal to, or less than the Father and continues to discuss the development of the Trinity as a necessary augmentation upon the new Christian view of God, grown out of Yahwism. Armstrong characterizes the development of the Trinitarianism of Christianity as a feature of Hellenism acting upon a Semitic-based religion. This she sees as the beginning of Christian exclusivism. For more on that, look at the Arian heresy. Chapter 5, Unity, the God of Islam, portrays the birth of Islam through the prophet Muhammad as the return to a transcendental god from the money-worshipping that the disparate Arabic tribes from the steppes had turned to. Muhammad is inspired by this numinous force, and since he recognized the need of his people to regain a transcendental focus, as well as their need of a revealed scripture, Armstrong says Muhammad relented to what he first thought was self-possession by a jinn. Over time, Islam also loses its reclaimed Semitic view of deity and incorporates Greek philosophy. It's important to note that Armstrong does not draw a distinction here that it was the Islamic philosophers who promoted God as reason. And she notes that in fact the Greek Christians, though originally having been responsible for co-opting their philosophy to augment the Semitic Christian revelation, they in fact turned the opposite direction to where they are today believing that ultimately God is a mystery and inscrutable to any human reason. Chapter 6. The God of the Philosophers looks at the Islamic incorporation of the Greek philosopher's view of God, even identifying reason itself as God. From the 9th century on, and also the philosophic rabbis such as Maimonides and finally the scholastic Christians like Aquinas, all, all of whom try to reason God. Armstrong argues that reason and philosophy try to contain the essentially holy num and numinous, but fail, and are succeeded by the mystics. Chapter 7. God of the mystics attributes the premium to personism, who we are, and humanism to the personal representations of God found in Judaism, Christianity, and less so, Islam. While noting dangers that the personal God can bring, Armstrong argues that the mystics brought back to the common people the god of human experience, a normative holiness that persisted in various forms until eventually an exclusive belief that God could only be known at all through such mystical and religious experiences came about. Chapter 8. A God for Reformers Beginning with the Italian Renaissance, technology and the New World required new thinking about God and reformers and counter-reformers persecuted the mystics, reintroducing new structures to replace the old. Armstrong divides this period into a time when Muslims and Jews were learning about allegory, symbolism, and interpretation, and Christians were developing literalism and searching for the geographic location of hell. Chapter 9, Enlightenment, means a process 
of technicalization, colonization and westernization of the expanding known world, and moreover a rising secularism that claimed the independence of God. Armstrong believes that revolutions in every area released human dependencies from traditions, institutions, and revelations. New mysticisms, new philosophies, and atheism gave rise, and Armstrong aligns herself with Denis Diderot, 1713-84, concluding that God is subjective and does not have any objective reality. Chapter 10, The Death of God, looks at the 19th and 20th centuries and the full arrival of atheism but also emphasizes Romanticism as rebellion against the Age of Reason and another recovery of medieval mysticism, but this time tinted by pantheism and the rise of interpretation through feeling and subjectivity, Friedrich Schleiermacher. But after the Christian interpretation resulting in Nazism, Armstrong determines the death of God as he was known to be decided. Overall, Armstrong shows the modern era as one that was eventually crushed at Auschwitz, an event that has forced the reconfiguration of nearly everything as we know it. The final chapter concludes her argument, begun neatly in the introduction with the proposal for a new, reimagined future that is essentially a retrieval of the history of God. But I would, in the spirit of reason and fair critique, look at a contradiction that lies in her basic argument. She argues that the idea of God is made up by humans to suit the needs of their time, society, culture, politics, weather, and temperament, in other words, their context. However, at the same time as trying to expose that we have indeed invented God and that he is never the same at any point to us, Armstrong contradicts with these there is a force that is present to all people at all times, and that this force is what really should matter to us. Armstrong says that each generation has to create the image of God that works for it, and that there is evidently no objective perception of God. What she means is that there is really nothing, as she says, out there. There is no reality, as mystics such as Evelyn Underhill proclaim, Note, <clears throat> Underhill in Practical Mysticism, 1914, believes that also in the numinous of Rudolf Otto, discussed by Armstrong, however, Underhill clearly acknowledges this to be the light of Christ, as she titled in another lecture series. Armstrong would have us maintain, even cleave to a faith that we truthfully know is an act and a product of creative imagination. So to get her argument straight, not only is there no qualitative, actual God out there, but moreover, whatever is out there, and she is clear that we create what is out there and it does not reveal itself to us, is our own imagination. This supports her second argument, which I will show she also contradicts, that the God we imagine is always contextual and therefore there is no one unchanging idea contained in the word God but like any other statement, only means something in context. The idea that there is nothing out there, that whatever God exists is created by human imagination, and that this imagined God is never the same, runs contrary to the agenda of the rest of her book. This agenda, it seems, is to invalidate tradition and the three monotheisms of her study, and endorse the only changeless, actual, objective experience that all faiths can have 
the numinous. The Idea of the Holy by Rudolf Otto, which is in fact a very excellent book, is introduced in the first chapter as the sense of the holy, basic to all religions, and giving rise to each of them, from Bacchanalianism to Judaism and Christianity. This idea of noumena and holiness is what, throughout each chapter of the book, Armstrong proposes as being the actual source behind religious experience. These experiences that she cites are caused by this holiness and are portrayed in a light of veracity. Armstrong's side is with the force, the holy, this can't-put-your-finger-on-it ultimate divine power that is not moral, but rather spiritual in the vaguest sense. Here is the great contradiction of the book. While this is a flaw in the argument running throughout, since it is intentional, it does not make the book less readable. What the author seems to desire is to leave the reader disillusioned with traditional orthodoxies and content with what I think is a New Age Jedi Force religion that looks skeptically at institutional faith expressions. If the book is not meant to leave the reader with a developed hermeneutic of suspicion, then it is certainly targeted at those readers who are not faithful to our religion and need consolation for their confusion and despair. Armstrong admits that she expected to discover God was just a projection of human needs, and that she was not far off. However, what she says surprised her was some of the wisdom among mystics of Jewish, Christian, and Islamic religions, who had truisms and teachings developed to deal with the very doubts and trials that confront people in Armstrong's position. The reader of this book will be disarmed by the frankness that her history is not of the ineffable transcendental God. The reader then expects he or she will not be proselytized to Armstrong's faith. What happens is instead, through these mystical quotations of rabbis, priests, and Islamic mystics, and through the lyrical homilies of romantic poets such as Wordsworth and Arnold, Armstrong delivers an, an indoctrination that is both ineffable and transcendental. With the encounter of the holy and the numinous, the reader is shown a religion without religion, a faith without faith, and a god without morality. The holy is written into every stage of Armstrong's history as a character that is innocent and unknowable, ineffable and without a face to know it by. Experiential but holy other in its transcendence and imminence. And that's of course imminence with an A, not an I, so as in present everywhere, not impending immediately. It's definitely worth noting the difference between imminence and immanence. So, check it out. This passive character holds actually the center stage of the text and the plot as it weaves through imagined holy scriptures, religious persecutions, holy wars, witch and heretic burnings, and schism. The character is quietly there, only occasionally making an explicit statement waiting in the background for the reader to finally be convinced that each of these religions are invented, fictitious, in that they come only from human minds conditioned by circumstance, and then for the reader to lapse back and relent to the idea, no, the doctrine, that in the end, all that we can truly know is this vague sense of the holy that pervades all things and people, but that this holiness will only manifest as we choose to express it at which time it ceases to be itself, and the creative imagination of humanity will have invented something new again. 
This is a book opposed to revelation in the truest sense. There is a holy, but as soon as we imagine it, we destroy it and replace it with something not ineffable and not transcendent. Jesus, Armstrong says, never claimed to be divine. Armstrong ends her argument, victorious in her belief that religion as we know it, and as she has shown evident dislike for, will change. She consoles the reader not to fear the loss of our religions as they are, because humans are creative and will fill the vacuum by creating a new focus of meaning. This is a pessimistic view of the contemporary situation, which is by no means a good situation for the world, and there is urgent need to accept the plurality and values of the different religious traditions if we are to end human war and strife. However, pessimism is not helpful in my opinion. This consolation is empty of promise, necessarily so when one has just read a history about human revelation that attributes revelation to simple creative imagination. Armstrong's book should be read. It is valuable to read, and anyone who is unaware of this popular perception of the history of God needs urgently to be informed. The text is clear and the research sufficient, and one does not need to agree with the author to find in her a true companion in the quest and a fellow seeker of the truth of God's revelation in Christ. 2nd of February, Imbolc. 2004. This is a review I wrote for a World Religions seminar in my master's, taught by the Right Reverend Bishop Michael Ingham, who's a good friend of Desmond Tutu's and the Dalai Lama, and was a good teacher and guide. And of course, I was under discernment process for the Anglican Church at the time. Uh, it's a big book that I did. And he wrote a note which I will share with you. This is a huge book to review, and so your summary and indecipherable word there, of the content is necessarily general and lacking in detail. However, your concluding critique and analysis of Armstrong's underlying assumptions and contradictions are very interesting. You demonstrate an ability in theological argument which is impressive. There is always a hidden metaphysic in theological writing. Your own is clear, and you leave exposed Armstrong's with clarity and sympathy. Very good. Bishop Michaelingham. Um, so here's a, a last thing I want to leave you with. This is something that I, I did because you can't actually tell what I think from this book review, and and you can sort of, but not really. Like if you think if you hear this, you're not actually going to get a sense of what I think. It might sound that I'm for her or against her or for or against her in some ways, and and what I really do, of course, focus on is is looking at a certain contradiction in that even as she denies a certain universal existence of God. She, in fact, is reinserting her own more vague, numinous idea of God, but it's just as transcendental. Of course, putting more onus and interpretation focus on the human agency involved. But that aside, again, none of this really does characterize what I actually think. For that, you'd have to read a very long book I wrote. Um, so, a fun fact about grad school... Um, a lot of uh, universities, once you get out of the bullshit of the baccalaureate system, um, you will notice that uh, some, a lot of, a lot of really good ones, uh, they do away with grades. They, they just sort of go approved or not approved, and approved means like you got 80, 85%, which is basically an A. But 
they still need to communicate for people who are especially considering moving on to doctoral studies uh, some sort of degrees of, of, of quality in their work. So they can't do that within an approved, not approved system except by subtly sort of adding in the occasional very good or the very rare excellent. And that's a way of, in an approved, not approved system, identifying some of the students that have potential or recommendation to move on to, to doctoral work. So yeah, um, it was a good course. I highly recommend uh, Michael Ingham's, uh, who was the bishop, he might still be actually of the Diocese of New Westminster, where I'm from. And he was also the, the parish priest at St. Francis in the Wood, where my family's parish was in West Vancouver growing up. And uh, he wrote a book called Mansions of the Spirit, which is looks at plurality and religion, has a, you know, good comments from the Dalai Lama and, and Desmond Tutu and a bunch of other amazing people. It's a very good book. Michael Ingham actually, unfortunately, never did a, a doctorate, despite I think I call him a doctor in, on the paper's title. And unfortunately, so he could never become a full professor at, at the uh, university, which a lot of the faculty thought was a shame. But he he's became a bishop that forged the same-sex union passage in Canada, which led to many threats in, from the African bishops against the Diocese of New Westminster, and even the Archbishop of Canterbury had to like weigh in on it, so basically saying there's nothing I can do, because in the Anglican and Episcopal churches, uh, bishops are basically their own little barren princes who make decisions as they see fit based on votes from the synods, which are composed largely of the, the laity and the regular people in the church. So if people want something, there's not that much a bishop can do to stop it. Um, yeah, and certainly no other diocese or archdiocese in the communion has any ability to prevent or condemn it, really. Um, and after the Diocese of New Westminster approved same-sex union marriages uh, while I was in there, and this is early 2000s, uh, it caused a, a domino effect across Canada and then the world. So that really was the pioneer time, and I, it was really nice to be working with Michael Liam during that time, um, whatever you think of the issues itself. Anyway, I highly recommend Karen Armstrong's book. It's actually a very, very beautiful book and really takes you through a winding process of history. Of course, being in grad school, I couldn't ignore the fact that I observed a fundamental contradiction within her argument, and that's what I laid bare in this review. So it's a great book. Um, check it out. You can probably get it at secondhand or used pretty easily. It's, it's thick, but it really covers a lot of the major points and thoughts and arguments in the history of God. And there is, of course, a highly sound basis to the idea and argument of the construction of religions by humanity. Of course we constructed religions, and of course they weren't just projected into our brain by the divine jism of God. They, they were constructed over time, in context and place, and highly dependent on locality and culture, and that's true to this day. So um, understanding how that took shape over the three major religions is very fascinating, and especially as she draws into the different sources and then contrasts them with the mystics and even the poets and other scientific people and thinkers of the time. So there you have it. And uh, even though I show a contradiction in her argument about the numinous as a new sort of transcendental signified and replacement of God, that's not saying I have a problem with it or I think that's a bad idea. Not at all. In my points that I've made in my books are simply that it's a bit more complicated or that I think it should be a bit more complicated than simply erasing our past and having a, a new Jedi Force religion, which would be great, but I mean, I'm going to hold off till we have lightsabers and stuff. So, have a great day. Peace. 
Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk